Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Binds Us podcast. We are very excited to have Marie Core, co-founder and CEO at wellness and fitness company Hydra Studios on our podcast. Prior to starting Hydra Studios, Marie worked at Goldman Sachs, which is where the idea for Hydra Studios originated. Today, Marie is going to give us the scoop on what she wishes that she knew before starting her business. Thank you so much for being here. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful getting to know you guys, and I'm excited to, you know, let let everyone know kind of how I started this and obviously what I wish I knew. Oh, we are (laughs) pumped to get all the details. So do you want to start by walking us through your career path? Did you always know that you wanted to work in finance? Actually, no. (laughs) I started as a political science and journalism major with a minor in economics. So when I graduated, I was surprised, but also excited to get a job with Goldman Sachs, but I was working in operations. And so that's kind of known as the back office in finance. It's a very detail oriented work. So I was doing that for two years and really hustled in order to get over to the revenue side or the sales side. So when I was on the sales side, I was supporting large market institutional clients, uh, you know, allocating their, um, you know, portfolio over multiple investment strategies. So it was a really fast paced job. I really enjoyed the people I was working with. Everyone at Goldman is, you know, incredibly hardworking, very smart. I learned a ton, but at the end of the day, after five years there, you know, I was at a point where I realized I wasn't incredibly passionate about what I was doing. And it was important for me at that point in my life to be passionate about, you know, what I went to work and did every day. Mm -hmm. So I um, moved over to another startup. Um, This one's called News Deeply, and it's a journalism startup. And I moved there after Goldman because they uh, were doing really great journalism on complex global issues and going deep into every single issue. And they had, you know, great journalists, but they needed to figure out how to monetize this platform. So I came on as the director of business development and revenue. And that was, you know, doing what I loved, got to travel the world in that role and also got to work with a female CEO. Mm-hmm. And saw uh, the process of, you know, raising funding rounds, starting a company, what that's actually like. And that gave me the confidence to take this idea I had had at Goldman and go start my own company. I love that so much. The thing about mm-hmm. finance that people <laughs> who don't work in it, every sentence has multiple words that you would have to look up. It is so frustrating. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like every single, in order to understand the one sentence, you have to look up like allocate portfolio, like all of this stuff might, some of these words might be new to our audience. Totally. It's um, it's a lot of jargon. (laughs) um, Once you get into it, you know, like any industry, but there's a ton of jargon and it's definitely not as complicated as it seems. Oh, that's good. Because that's, you know, minoring in economics and then hopping into Goldman Sachs and being expected to know all that. There was probably a learning curve, but I think it's great that you were able to then in your second job, bring in your journalism degree, because I'm sure that was something that you were passionate about or you probably wouldn't have majored in it. Absolutely. It's something I'm you know, still passionate about. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting uh, as you develop a career path to bring in different passions at different 
parts of it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, hopefully I'd love to do some something in journalism and policy, you know, maybe at a later date. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's funny how things, you know, later on in life come back. I majored in advertising and for many years didn't do anything with it. And now, you know, it's, I'm doing marketing and advertising for brands and for us and, you know, yeah. and I never, you know, knew, saw that coming. So you never know. Totally. All right. Talk to us about the lifestyle of someone working in finance. How did you stay mentally and physically healthy when you were working so many hours? Yeah, that's a great question. There, as you said, there was definitely a learning curve for me. You are, you know, thrust into a pretty fast-paced world, and a lot of people in finance also have to study for uh, licenses in order to do their jobs. And so that's where I learned a lot of the jargon and the financial instruments. Was studying for my like Series Seven, Sixty Six, Six, all of those different licenses you have to have. So between, you know, working in finance, trying to study, trying to get in physical fitness, you know, friends have a social life in New York, I found myself overwhelmed at some points. And so the office at Goldman Sachs actually really helped me. They have this beautiful wellness center that has a gym. It has a beautiful locker room, showers. And I kind of use that as a second home base, which allowed me to fit a lot more into my day. I could knock out a fitness class early in the morning, go to work all day, uh, have some time, uh, you know, to work out during the day. And then after work, go study, go to a client event, go to dinner with friends and not have to go home to my apartment or, you know, spend a lot of time commuting. So that, that was really important for me to have those amenities on site. I also started meditation when I was at Goldman, they offered a meditation class and it was the first time I'd ever taken anything like it. And now I do it daily. And so that was a great practice I picked up there. So I think, you know, with trying to fit so much into a day, uh, I really learned to build my routine around wellness instead of trying to fit wellness into my routine. That is fascinating. That is fascinating because so many people get burned out. You know, it's just too much. Yes, you're making a bunch of money quickly, but you don't ever have time to spend it. You know, that's what I've heard so many times. Like we all bought fancy cars, but of course we weren't driving cars. So, (laughs) you know, whatever it was, it was, you know, kind of this breeding ground to go out and do other things that weren't quite so intense. And that um, is a fascinating way to think about it. So start with the wellness aspect and go from there. Yeah. Put it at the center of your routine. Uh, do it every day whenever it makes sense to you. And I think wellness is very, it's a, such a blanket term now, but it means something different to every single person. Find out what it means to you and just try to build it into your routine every day instead of trying to squeeze it in when you have a few minutes because that doesn't, I think that ends up stressing people out more than actually helping. Right. Yes, exactly. And sometimes wellness can be, you know, a nap or reading a book or just anything that checks you out of all of the stress for just a little while, as well as obviously exercise and meditation and things like that, taking a run. So decide what it is for you. Wellness for me is that time where I can get in fitness. So fitness is really important to me. It's that, you know, heart pumping workout. And then afterwards having, whether that's in Savasana or my own meditation, having that kind of endorphin rush and then also cool down where I can really recenter into myself. So that is something that I try to do every single day. 
it's uh, important to me and I find myself just much happier and more productive when I get that in. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Day is sort of like that with um, exercise too. Yes. And then for both your job and running a business, how did you familiarize yourself with the industry and the vocabulary? I know you talked a little bit about studying for the test was helpful. I did the same thing when I started at Barney's. I'm like sitting at my desk Googling, what is this word? (laughs) And then I ended up taking some non-credit courses at FIT so that I could actually be taught some of these things that I was like all of a sudden just thrust into. Totally. One of my big beliefs is that a smart person can learn almost anything. Right. And there is a barrier to entry with all of these words and people throwing them around like they really know what they are. But I think, you know, a way to conquer that, to your point, Delia, is reading books. When I first started at Goldman, I read every book I could find about finance just to understand this world I was entering and understand, you know, the financial instruments that I could be working with. Turns out I wasn't, you know, trading at a desk and shorting a stock, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I was, I needed to know, you know, about that to speak with my clients. So, you know, passing those exams, uh, you know, kind of was, it was very important to me in the world of finance. But then when I got in the startup world, a lot of the jargon is different. A lot of the terms that are thrown around, the whole process is a lot different than what I was used to. And so in that world, I... It's not necessarily reading books. At least that's not how I conquered it. I actually went to a lot of networking events and talked to people who had started companies, asked them what they wish they knew, what did they, what advice would they give me? What does this word mean? And I found that other founders and people in this industry were some of my best resources, you know, when we, when we were going out and raising money. That's fascinating. I was just thinking about, you know, unfortunately for people right now, it's hard to find those events, but that's great advice. Totally. And I think a lot of them have moved to virtual platforms. Right. You know, there is something about that in-person interaction that is so valuable and we all miss it, but there, there is some value to be had from meeting someone virtually, maybe going into a one-on-one meeting with them, mm-hmm. or you know, reaching out on LinkedIn and saying, Hey, your experience looks awesome. Can I have 15 minutes of your time? Yeah, that's great advice. And you can meet with someone, you know, that is in uh, Norway or what, you know, it doesn't have to be (laughs) in New York or whatever. So that's a positive about, um, you know, going virtual. All right. What is Hydra Studios and how did the idea come about? So Hydra Studios is a network of elevated wellness studios where our members have spaces to work out, meditate, recharge, refresh, and hopefully leave ready to take on their day. Uh, the idea was actually inspired by my use of the Goldman Sachs amenities, like we talked about, and how mm-hmm. they allowed me to do so much of my day. And I realized once I went to a smaller company that, you know, most people working in New York didn't really have access to amenities like this. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to, you know, take this concept, hopefully expand it and really democratize it. It was um, born in a different time. So it was, you know, the concept was born in a time when New Yorkers were out of our apartments from, you know, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. trying to fit so right. much into their day. And so creating this wellness hub was the initial concept. Clearly, COVID has changed that. We are in our apartments all day. We're desperate to get out. So right. then the focus really became on creating a wellness experience that was COVID safe. And we transitioned to having these private reservable fitness and wellness suites that people could book individually. They're clean between each use. 
and hopefully get in fitness and wellness in a safe way. Uh, you know, ultimately we still have a lot of our other things on our product, but, uh, that has really been the focus during this time. Um, in terms of the name, we were thinking about words and brainstorming my co-founder and I, that were synonymous with refreshing and recharging mm-hmm. and the word hydrate came up and we love that word. So mm-hmm. we called it Hydra. Little did we know, uh, it's also used in Marvel comics. It's, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of other connotations. So, um, it's kind of funny, but you know, we stuck with it. That is so funny. You just, you know, at least you didn't have to rebrand the whole thing because a lot of people, you know, pick their name, have everything set up, their website, and then someone comes after them, you know, and says that's already taken or whatever. So I think it's a fabulous, fabulous name. And I also think it's COVID has just been so, what's come out of it is so interesting. You were sort of creating a haven And now you're creating a haven in a different way. I mean, I think it's just so interesting. It works so well because like Delia said, she's so frustrated trying to work out in her apartment, but, you know, going to certain gyms that have set up kind of things outside where you're on your bike in a classroom and it's freezing. That doesn't, it doesn't seem safe. It doesn't seem like something that most people would want to do. This is like a, a really nurturing environment that you're creating as well as a workout environment, I feel like. Yeah, we hope so. I think there's been a lot of innovation just that's been necessary from COVID. Right. This is, you know, one way that we're tackling it and we're excited by the initial response. A lot of other companies have tackled it different ways. It depends on people's individual comfort level. But I think the concept of having a private space for yourself even post COVID, some people really like oh, yeah. the idea. Yeah, it'll be interesting if you end up doing sort of a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Um, that'll be fascinating to watch. I know. I loved in my research, one of the articles talked about in March. It was like when COVID happened, it was a great time for you because it wasn't like you were three fourths of the way done. Like it was, y'all were kind of starting construction. So you immediately pivoted, which I think is fascinating and kudos to you. So talk more about what Hydra Studios offers in terms of Peloton, T-Rex, all of that. What will you offer post COVID events, et cetera? Yeah, that's a a funny point you bring up. We had just broken ground when the city shut down and we couldn't do anything. So we really had this opportunity to think, what does the future of fitness and wellness look like? How can we open when we're able to start construction again? So worked with our phenomenal design and construction teams to reconfigure and readapt some of the uses of the space into these private suites. And we've learned a ton. Our next one, we'll do some things differently as well, but it's, it's such an iterative process. So our current studio that just opened on Wall Street, it has these reservable fitness and wellness rooms. And so you book by activity type. If you would like to ride a Peloton, uh, you, you book a Peloton. Uh, we have Mirror, which is the workout system where you can take different classes. We also have just weightlifting, benches, TRX. Some of our members come and they'll virtually work out with a personal trainer or they have their own workout. They have their own routine. Maybe they're a fan of the class or of, you know, another yoga studio. That's great. They'll come stream those classes in our space because we have all of that equipment. Uh, We also have an infrared sauna. uh, And then we have these wonderful, gorgeous kind of refresh areas, our locker rooms, rainfall showers, beauty bar area, 
uh, locker storage, towel service, steam rooms. We're really into our products. So we have Malin and Guts and Brooklyn and Towels and Dyson Blow Dryers. And then we have these uh, recharge areas, which are nap and meditation spaces. We found that these are very popular with an office population, which we had initially thought we'd be serving on Wall Street. So a place for people to come get that little break in their day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're interested to see if people you know, also want that when they're in their homes all day. So it's a lot of testing out different parts. In terms of what will it will be like post-COVID, in our original studio, which opened on Fifth Avenue and exclusively serves a co-working company called Convene, we did a lot of different types of programming aimed at the modern professional. We did upwards of 20 classes and events a week. We did do fitness. We also did med- mindfulness and meditation. And then we also talked a lot about, um, we brought in people to talk about sleep and stress management and nutrition and relationship wellness. So we will try to go back to a programming schedule that is similar to offering kind of that holistic wellness programming, albeit I think a lot of our classes will be semi-private in order to maintain the kind of sense of privacy, cleanliness, and safety that we've developed. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting too, and when you, you were thinking about the people in offices wanting to be able, instead of they obviously couldn't run home and just take a break or even take a 20-minute nap. Um, but now, especially for women who are working at home and have children underfoot and a husband maybe that's working for home, I bet the idea of going and taking a quick class by themselves and then actually going and taking some quiet time, just a nap or a meditation would be super important and really a great offering. We were, we were surprised and encouraged by that because at our Fifth Avenue studio, we have two of these private nap and meditation areas, and they were booked a lot, more than we thought. And so that clearly shows, and not necessarily for napping, uh, it was sometimes people that just had a hard conversation and needed to get away from the desk, needed to recenter. I think yeah. a lot of times it was used for that. So to your point... Uh, we're we're going to be interested once the office population comes back to see if, if those are valuable spaces. Right, right. I wouldn't be surprised if they are. All right. How did you learn to start, run, and grow a business? It was mostly trial and error. <laughs> there are playbooks out there, but each business is so unique. A lot of it is making different decisions that apply to your own business. I think I had two valuable experiences that helped me out. Number one, I got to see how a Fortune 100 business operates and works at Goldman. Incredibly efficiently run. They have perfected their business model. You are coming into this very developed organization and learning their practices and then executing upon them. So that was such a great, can't emphasize it enough, such a great place to start my career and really learn that work ethic. And then on the flip side, going from this huge company where, you know, I had my four screens and we had wonderful people that helped out with everything from your technology to your travel, then going to a, you know, such a scrappy start startup like News Deeply and building everything from scratch, building, you know, your pipelines, building the system, building your operating procedures. So I think I really got to experience both ends of the spectrum and that was super valuable So what we hope to do is bring kind of that corporate approach to how we operate Hydra Studios, but then also we're a really small company. So you just, you have to be scrappy. Your weeds Mm -hmm. are in, um, you know, you're in the weeds in in every 
and everything. Right. So I think at this point, you know, we started it, we're running it. Now it's how do we look at what we're doing, decide what we're doing right, and then repeat it and start to scale it. And that's the next step of the company. Very good advice for people listening too, because some people probably do better in uh, working with a business that's already been set up and all of that is, you know, running smoothly. And then some people love getting in there and the very beginning and figuring it all out. Talk to us about the decision to have a co-founder, the importance of having the right one and how you went about splitting up your responsibilities and choosing titles, et cetera. Yeah, I found a wonderful co-founder uh, and Dan Nielsen. We've known each other for, gosh, over a decade now. We started as analysts at Goldman together. So obviously formed a strong bond with the rest of our analyst class, who I'm still friends with a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And he was one of the first people I actually pitched this idea to. He went home, built a financial model, and we both started working on it on the side. It was kind of a fun thing and then decided to take the jump together. So I think for me, the decision to have a co-founder, it almost just happened organically. Mm -hmm. And luckily it has worked out for the long term. I think it is really great to have a different perspective and to have a sounding board because when you're building something, a lot of times you're in your own head sometimes and you're like, I just need to talk to other people. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that, you know, a co-founder can serve that role an advisory board, even friends and families. Uh, in terms of you know splitting the responsibilities, we're both doing everything, but Dan naturally excels at strategy, operational efficiency, working on our real estate deals, and then fundraising. And I've naturally gravitated more towards the design, uh, both physically and digitally, our branding, our marketing, how we're building our presentations and pitching our business, and then thinking creatively about new verticals and new business lines and new applications of what we've built. So for us, it's kind of, we are different. So it's kind of shaken out naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in terms of titles, I think it's, it's kind of interesting to even have a CEO title at this point, because mm-hmm. when you're co-founding a small company, you're, you're both just so in the weeds and doing everything. But, um, you know, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really proud and happy to have been, to be a female founder that has raised you know, millions in venture capital. And uh, it's, it's empowering to, to have that CEO title. Congratulations. That's bad. Congratulations. So talk to us more. You described a little bit about some of your responsibilities. Is there anything you want to add about what your role as CEO looks like? It's funny because I think press, startup press, especially makes it out to seem that founders and CEOs is a pretty sexy role. And I think most of us will tell you that it's not we really do get to do some cool things like this podcast, but a lot of times, and especially at a small company, we're getting our hands dirty and we're involved in every part of the company. Uh, If I could distill my role, it really comes down to making decisions. I have a sticky note on my computer that says collect, filter, decide. So collect all the information I can filter out what doesn't work and then decide on the path forward. I think it's also equally important to hire the right people to execute on that path and that strategy, give them room to perform in their roles and then hold them accountable. So if I could distill it into what it, what it really comes down to, I think those for me have been the important things that I've been focused on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's great advice. Collect, filter and decide, especially when you're seeking the advice of others. Absolutely. Filter that what works for you. Yeah. 
Okay, what type of capital is right for one's business? And what does that even mean for those that don't have never heard that before? Capital is money. <laughs> capital <laughs> equals money equals funding. Um, and I hate this answer, but it really depends on the company that you're trying to start. Okay. We are, we wanted to start and we are starting a company that we want to grow, scale, and eventually exit. And when we say exit, that means either get acquired maybe merge with another business or, and this happens to a lot of startups lately, do an IPO, which is an initial public offering on the, the stock exchange. So that's really what, um, if, you're, if you want to do that path, the capital that could be right for you is venture capital, which we can talk about. However, you know, a lot of people, and I'd actually love to start a business like this down the road, you want to start a business that you own 100% of. You're in charge of all the decisions. You want to turn a profit, but do you want to grow that business to be you know, a huge corporation? Probably not. And in that case, it could be best to fund your business either with your own money or you know, get around together of friends and family. So unfortunately, it does depend on the type of business, um, you know, the funding, the capital, the money, whatever you're using to get the, this business off the ground um, does depend on, on what you're starting. I'm so glad that you clarified that, you know, because we do hear stories about small companies. They, once they have other people sort of telling them what to do, they want to see the money double and all of this kind of stuff really quickly. And a lot of times it doesn't, you know, it doesn't go so well for the founders in the end. So it's not always the right path to take. Absolutely. And there could be a situation where you start your own company, you own a hundred percent of it it's doing great. And you're like, you know, in order to really put this thing in hyper growth, I would like to take outside money, outside capital. And I'm willing to give up some control because I know it works and I'd like to take this to the next level. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. Sure. That makes sense too. You can change midstream. You can decide, actually, I think a lot more people would benefit from what I'm doing. So when you're ready to do something, make it a on a bigger scale, then that's when you would reach out to outside funding, right? Absolutely. Okay. Talk to us about the ins and outs of fundraising. How did you decide how much money to raise, percentage of your business to sell, et cetera? Yeah. Fundraising took us a while and we landed on the amount that we wanted to initially raise by putting everything together to say what would get us to launch our first studio. And so that was how much does it cost to build? How much does it cost to operate? And what, what other, you know, how much runway do we have? Runway is essentially how, how long can your business survive if it's not bringing in, um, if it, you know, if it's not bringing in enough money to survive on its own. So Mm -hmm. we came up with that number and in terms of fundraising, we created a pipeline of different types of investors, very similar to a sales pipeline, and started to pitch them on our idea. We learned a lot. We knew we learned we had to pitch the right types of investors. For example, you know, people who invest only in technology probably weren't the ones to fund Hydra Studios, and we had to learn that the hard way. Okay. And ultimately, our someone, you know, a lead investor believed in us. And we negotiated what our valuation would be. 
um, which you know ultimately backs into the percentage of the company that you're get, giving up. So at this point, we don't disclose that valuation, but we decided that we needed to raise $2 million in our initial funding round. And then earlier in 2020, um, we did raise an initial, uh, you know, additional 1.8 million to, to grow. So in total, we've raised around 3.8. Congratulations again. That's awesome. Yeah, thank you. We're proud of it. You should be. So this is something I think venture capital seems extremely sexy and maybe not everyone 100% understands what that means. So my question to you is, do you have to raise venture capital to have a successful startup? And if not, what are some of the options, other options for them, like a small business loan, like you mentioned before, friends and family, and how can one determine what's best for them? The answer is no, you do not have to raise venture capital to have a successful startup. There are many examples of phenomenal companies that have not raised venture capital. Spanx is one that comes to mind, Sarah Blakely. Venture capital, these are funds of professional investors and their job is to invest in startups. So they raise money from other investors and then they're the ones that vet every all the startups that come through and decide which ones to invest in. They usually are looking for a very high return. So if they put $10 into a company, they want to get a hundred or even a thousand out of that investment. So venture capital, they do want high growth companies, Mm -hmm. other forms of capital, uh, friends and family is one that I talked about, but we also did a small fundraising round with our friends and family And that's great to get off the ground. And sometimes it's all you need to get your initial product or idea out in the world. A lot of times it's going to be, you know, people who believe in you, they might not really understand or know a lot about the company you're starting, but they're your friends, they're your family, they believe in you. And it's it's a great place to go if you feel comfortable for, you know, some of that uh, seed funding. Another type of capital is angel investors. So these are people who investing isn't their full-time job, but it's something that they're excited by and they like, you know, ultimately to help small businesses grow. So if you're starting a company in, you know, cosmetics or fashion, uh, it's fun to, and it's necessary to look and see what other people in this world invest in small companies like mine. A lot of times angel investors can become really good advisors and ultimately introduce you to other people or other angel investors. And then you touched on it, Delia, but you can also do a small business loan. Mm -hmm. And I think this is best for if you're starting a company that has a proven business model and you're, you know, you're starting an architecture or a, a design company and you have clients lined up, you have a proven business model, but you need some money to get off the ground. Uh, I think that is a great way to go because you're not necessarily giving up an ownership percentage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the thing about venture capital is you also have access to their network. Those are extremely connected people and they can introduce you to some people that could maybe potentially make a huge difference in your business. Yeah, absolutely. They have huge networks. They want to see you succeed because they have ownership in your company. And so if you succeed, they succeed. And because they've seen so many companies grow and a lot of them fail, they're able to, you know, hopefully give you some, some pretty accurate advice at different stages. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. And how do people find angel investors? There are a few different ways. There are angel investor networks. So one in New York is called New York Angels. There, another one is called, I believe it's Harvard Angels. But sometimes people get together uh, in these networks and each of them puts in a certain amount of capital and they're able to vet different companies as a group. Um, other times you can look in Crunchbase. Um, Crunchbase.com is a, a great tool for people who are looking to fundraise. And you can look up companies that are similar to the ones, uh, similar to what you're starting and look at who invested in their early funding rounds. A lot of times you'll see individual names and a lot of those individuals are angel investors. So unfortunately, I don't know of like a big repository of angel investors, but they're usually um, a lot of times experts in the industry that they invest in. And it's easy to, to find some of them in Crunchbase. Great. I love that. That was a great answer. Yeah. Good info. We love like actionable steps that people can actually dig their teeth into. All right. What three things do I need to start pitching my business and or raising money? Yeah. Three things. Number one, you need a pitch deck. Hmm. Number two, you need a financial model. And number three, you need a short, easy elevator pitch email. So a pitch deck is by far one of the most important things. You, it's like your business card, your LinkedIn profile, everything condensed into this deck that is, you know, 10 to 20 pages. And there's a lot of great pitch decks online that mm-hmm. you can go and see the initial pitch decks for Airbnb and Uber online. And a lot of it's just answering what problem are you trying to solve? How does your product solve that problem? What are your plans for your future? Who's on your team? And ultimately, how are you going to make money? So a pitch deck is really important. I probably perfected ours, you know, tens of tens sure. of times to try to get it in the right place. Sure. Uh, second is a financial model. This is just how, how are you going to make money? I think at a, a starting phase, it can be pretty simple. And a lot of times you can actually work with someone or hire someone uh, that has a finance background. Uh, business school or MBA students are great to come on and help you create that financial model. And then the last thing is just honestly a two sentence elevator pitch that you can send out and Mm -hmm. someone can read those two sentences and understand what your business is about, at least initially to hopefully get that meeting. Mm -hmm. Cause they're not going to read through the whole pitch deck necessarily to get the first meeting. Will they, or will they? No, a lot of people don't. I mean, we're all so busy, especially in investors or angels, you know, whoever right. is pitching. And so you need something to really capture them and make them interested to even open up your pitch deck. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for that answer. Instead of just saying the three and then having us say, okay, tell us more about the pitch deck and how does one even put that together? You just already said it without us having to ask. You are really <laughs> The whole topic unto itself, but um, it's fun to yes, talk. It yes, it is. <laughs> it really is. It really is. I feel like all these terms are so sexy, but actually like actioning it and implementing it is a different story. Totally. <laughs> what is the importance of having a good lawyer and how can you find one? We found that it's important to have a lawyer that specializes in startups. 
And you can find one by simply Googling startup lawyer, or you can reach out to me and I will connect you with some phenomenal ones. But a lot of times when you hear the term lawyer, you're like, why do I need a lawyer? My dad's a lawyer or my brother is, he can help me. If you're really serious about starting a company, especially raising outside money, it's important to have somebody who can guide you through that process and ultimately save you time. So when we were working and pitching venture capital firms, a good lawyer is able to read some of the terms that they're putting in front of you and say, yes, this sounds great, or no, this, this isn't market, this is weird. They're also able to introduce you to investors and tell you about that investor's reputation and how other founders have fared working with them. So um, I would definitely recommend if you're interested in starting you know, a business, especially if you're raising outside capital, go find a lawyer that specializes in startups because they can help you get everything set up and ultimately save time and money. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. At what stage of your business is this happening? I would say this is after you've come up with a business model and a business plan. So you have your initial idea before you go and start trying to raise money. That's the part to hire a lawyer. And at this point, you're probably paying out of pocket. So saying, hey, I need three to five hours of your time to help me get incorporated and set up if you haven't done that already and to help me get everything in place so that when I talk to these investors, they're going to look at my business and say, okay, this person has all their ducks in a row. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Perfect. What is the importance of meeting other founders? This was huge for me. I cannot thank all the other founders that sat down and gave me advice. I think founders have a form of mutual respect for one another because they've all gone through a similar process. Right. So you know, I think if you're starting a company, try to reach out on LinkedIn or any other method that you can to other people. A lot of times they will, you know, take, take some time and sit down with you. And I think the big importance is they're able to save you a lot of time. If you meet a founder and you really love the branding on their website, what branding firm did you use? <laughs> you know, they'll be able to say, oh yeah, I use this person and this is why they were great or this is why they weren't. Mm-hmm. So um, I've gone to founders a lot for referrals. I've gone to them for introductions and I've gone to them for advice. Um, Right now we're gearing up our marketing and I'm going to start running a lot of it. And I don't have a marketing background. So I set up calls with five of my phenomenal female founder friends who I think have done great marketing and I want to learn how they did it. And so that's, um, you know, I still use my founder network a lot. That's wonderful. Yeah, that really is great. That's, you know, it is so interesting too. It's almost like you've you've all been in the trenches. You know how hard it is. It's like anything else. You know, we hear from clothing designers or jewelry designers. It's such a lonely career. I would love to know how other people are navigating all of this. If you're just doing it by yourself, you know, so it's just so important. I feel like to find other founders. And so with your founder group, some of them are probably in your stage and then some of them have already established they're in the next phase or the phase after that. Yeah. Some of them have gone on and raised more money. Some of them have decided I'm friends with a lot of founders who have opened physical locations because that's a business that is more similar to mine. Mm-hmm. So some of them have gone on, you know, open multiple locations. Some of them are just starting out. 
So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's important to have those friends and that network through different stages, but someone, you know, a founder that is, you know, doing a multi hundred million dollar company probably isn't going to give me the resources um, that I need at this point. So also making sure that, uh, you know, their experience is kind of valuable to the point that you're at. Right. Yes. So Marie, what do you wish that you knew before starting your business? I wish I knew (laughs) so much, but, um, number one, it's going to take longer than you think. I think that is, I gave myself six months when we initially started and it took us nine months to even raise our first round of funding. So I think just going in, giving yourself a, giving yourself some, some time to figure it out, but realizing that that timeline can move (laughs) is is a good approach to take because I think it does take longer and maybe you reach that first goalpost super fast, whether that's shipping your first product or getting your first client, but then maybe the next five take twice as long. I think just building in that flexibility and also that compassion for yourself as a founder is really important. Another thing I learned, and this is important, especially as a woman, everything is negotiable. Legal fees can be negotiable. Your service providers, your contracts, uh, especially investors, when they come to you with the terms that they'd like to invest with, those are negotiable. So just knowing that a lot of times people expect you to negotiate. Um, this is you know, definitely true with salary negotiations and bonus negotiations. People expect you to negotiate and you should do it in a way that is, you're, you're comfortable with. But if something is just simply too high for you, a price that's quoted, let them know and try to negotiate it down. There's nothing wrong with that. I think two other things. I wish I knew not to take things personally. I know it's hard when you're first starting out. It's your baby. Uh, it mm-hmm. still is hard not to take stuff personally. But uh, to, the, to the extent that you can try to cover yourself if someone doesn't buy your product or if someone says no to your pitch, it's okay. Because at the end of the day, a lot of times, especially in the, the startup world, everyone is here to make money. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in the, the mission and the goal and you know, people say that on their websites, but at the end of the day, some people are here to make money and it's okay to have that in the back of your mind and not necessarily take things so personally when something doesn't go your way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's great advice. And it's hard. Both of those things are hard, like, especially for women, you know, the thing about negotiating and for men, you know, and, and that's an overgeneralized statement. Some women are perfectly, you know, straight out of college they're ready to negotiate everything and stand up for themselves um you know in some it's not a natural thing and so in the world in which you have inhabit right now you really do have to be able to come to the table thinking like a human being not as a woman talking to a bunch of men yeah i mean i'm not i don't like negotiating it's not a skill that i enjoy uh, I, my first job out of college of Goldman, I didn't negotiate my salary and a guy that went to my same school did and ended up with a higher one. And I learned oh. that lesson. And so now when I'm entering a negotiation, I actually bullet point everything that I want to say, just because I'm such a visual person. I like to read things and bullet point it out. And it helps me kind of get some comfort with, look, it's a negotiation. It's business. Let's not, don't, let's not take this personally, but, uh, let's, you know, I, I think that's what I've had to do to actually negotiate things. That's a great tip right there. Whatever it takes to be prepared and to be comfortable going in and standing up for yourself. Absolutely. 
So in terms of negotiation, it came from conversation. I think a lot of times, like we don't even know the salary. You wouldn't have known and not everyone tell, will tell you the salary. So did you read books, listen to podcasts, any more tips? I love the bullet points and everything, but how you learned as a female to negotiate and not get taken advantage of. Um, yeah, I think negotiating for, for me, like I, I learned the hard way. Uh, I have listened to a few podcasts on negotiation and it's also once again, trial and error. Because everyone has a different style. And a lot of times people are like, we'll go lower than you really want so that you end up in the middle. That's definitely one style. My approach is much more straightforward. I tell them, Hey, here's where we can, here's what we can do. Kind of take it or leave it. I'm not really actually trying to have a long drawn out negotiation. I don't have time for that. I'm just going to be really honest with you. Right. That's my style. Um, and then kind of back that up with your reasons. I think it's important to, to, you know, next time, Let's say you're hiring someone to, you know, a service provider to do maybe your website or build out your branding or help you with design. And they put something in front of you that's simply too high. Try negotiating. Tell them what you can pay. See what happens. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, that's the best place to start. So I have a question about that. So let's say it's someone who's listening to this and they go to, you know, to talk about being hired for a position at a company. Mm -hmm. And the person who's interviewing them says send us your uh, salary range that you would, you know, expect to get or hope to get. What would you say to that? If you had no idea what to say to that? Yeah, I would say to go higher than what you think you're worth. It's hard to, you know, a salary range, what you think you're worth. That, that's, that's a bad thing to say, but I, I would go higher. I would go in higher because the worst they can say is no. If they do, you get the job, they say no to your higher range, then at least they've, you've developed this, this high range of your value. You're valuable. You are. Right. That's right. And demand what demand higher. Cause a lot of times we know people, you know, undervalue themselves. They're like, Oh, well, exactly. how little can you get paid to still do this job? No, don't think about it that way. How much should you make to, you know, add value? The worst they'll say is no. And ultimately, you'll probably end up higher than you would have. Um, I think you will almost all of the time. Mm -hmm. I think that's great. And especially the point that you feel like you're at the disadvantage sort of when you're the one hoping to get the job. But really, you are probably worth a lot more to them than you are giving yourself credit for. Yeah. And then being on the other side of the table, um, I've had many employees negotiate their salary for me. And it's not, once again, don't take it personally. They're trying to get as much as they can, which totally makes sense. And then you, right. know, you have to go back and say, actually, this is the range that we can provide. But you know, I, if you expect that you're going to make 20,000 more than this, let's talk about that in six months. If you're adding that value, I think if you also, that's another great point. If you, if for some reason you come in below that range, the next step is like, okay, but let's set up some goals that I can beat to get to the range that I want to be at. So that that's, you know, in the line of sight. And so, you know, ultimately the company's budgeting that in. Perfect, perfect advice. Any fundraising myths that we should know about? I'll go through just three quickly. Um, the first one is that a lot of times people will say you have to be making money. So you have to have revenue coming in in order to go out and raise additional capital. Mm -hmm. That is not true. Um, we were pre-revenue. We didn't have any money um, from clients when we went and raised money. So don't be put off by people telling you that. 
Um, the second myth is, you know, some people said, oh, you have to set a minimum size. So you have to set, you know, $50,000 is the minimum size of investment you'll take. <laughs> we took wow. tiny amounts. I mean, we were like, what? I mean, at some point, you're scrappy. You, gotta, you, you kind of can take what you can get. And so um, obviously for more established businesses, that might make sense. But when you're starting out, um, I thought that was a myth and that wasn't, you know, sound advice. And then um, I think the last one is a lot of people say, you know, your whole process from start to finish should take around a quarter. So it should take three months. And ours took nine and that was long. And I'm not, I mean, part of me is embarrassed to say it, but that's just the reality. So um, I think uh, those are the three that, that I would lean into. I cannot imagine three months. I know. Setting anything brand new. That's crazy. Don't be embarrassed at all. I think a lot of times people want to make this a formula and it's not. Right. Life is not a formula. Yeah. <laughs> and obviously, especially when something like a global pandemic comes, it's never happened before. Oh, yeah. Now we're in totally new territory. Right. <laughs> okay. So what are some vocabulary words that we should know? I think the first thing is a cap table, your capital table. This is a really important term that you're going to um, hear thrown a around a lot if you're raising outside money and essentially a capital table, a cap table is just a breakdown of who owns what in your company. So if you have a co-founder and you split it two ways, your cap table has two people on it and 50% next to their name. So that's a really important term. Um, another term is term sheet. This once again, if you're raising any type of outside money, uh, a lot of times people will organize their thoughts. Investors will organize their thoughts um, on how much your company is worth, how much they want to invest in something called a term sheet. It's just bullet points that have, you know, we're going to invest $1 million and it's going to be at a $3 million valuation and therefore we get 30%. So it just summarizes the terms, but that's another one to, to know. Um, CapEx, so capital expenditure, uh, this is, uh, you'll hear CapEx thrown around a lot, C-A-P-E-X. This is the amount of money that you're putting into to hard goods or to build your business. So for us, our CapEx for Hydra Studios is the amount of money that we put into building the studio. So that's uh, the hard cost of construction and the materials and things like that. Um, Next one is LPs and GPs, so limited partners and general partners. So you'll hear this a lot too in fundraising. Uh, the, a lot of times when you're meeting a venture capitalist, they'll say, well, our LPs want this to happen or here's our LPs. So those are the limited partners in the fund. Those are simply just the investors in that venture capital fund. The GP is the general partner and they are the fund themselves. So if it's Marie Claire Ventures, Marie Claire would be the GP and, you know, Delia and Allison invested in me, they'd be my LPs. And then a return profile. So this, this kind of goes with the accretive question, but, you know, um, if you look at any stock, you can see their return profile. That is, you know, the, how much it has did, increased or decreased over time. A lot of startup and venture investors are not only looking for you to increase the value of your company, they are looking for you to 10X that value. Um, or even more. So mm -hmm. that, that term we were talking about earlier, let's say they put in $10. When they extract their money from your company um, five years later or 10 years later, they want to extract $100 or $1,000. So 
for that $10 investment they put in. So I'll stop there. That was a lot in a short amount of time <laughs> to kind of ask, ask about any of them. No, I thought that was fabulous. I was shocked when I realized that venture capital funds, they have investors. So because one time I was talking to my friend and her boyfriend works in venture capital and they were talking about, oh, he goes on all these trips to raise money. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's not, other people are pitching to him to raise money, but apparently private equity and venture capital, they have investors. That's a hundred percent right. Yep. A lot of the institutions that I covered at Goldman. So you think of a large insurance company, they have a lot of money in reserve. And so most of that is held in, you know, bonds, cash, et cetera. But maybe they'll put some of that into funds like venture capital and private equity, which are considered much riskier. Um, venture capital is the riskiest. But these venture capital firms are going around and pitching to other large financial institutions to invest in them. Venture capital is considered um, a very risky asset class because a lot of times companies fail. And you go on the websites of you know, Sequoia or you know, some of these very reputable venture capital firms and they show you all of their winners. And that's great. You know, they invested in Google and Facebook and wow, they're really on top of it. But they'll tell you themselves for every winner, there were probably 10 losers. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's why venture capital firms need to have such a high uh, returns on their investments um, because the winners have to make up for all of those losers. Oh my gosh. Well, maybe everyone's going to say deal. Yeah. Everyone knows that. <laughs> that was like a huge no, thing. A totally different and new world for sure. Or it was to me when I got into it. Right. 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 And what is asset class? Sorry. Yeah. Asset class is just, uh, it defines, uh, what type of, um, it defines what type of financial instrument you're investing in. So you could do like equity, which is investing in stocks. You could buy a bond or you could look at other asset classes, which would be venture capital, private equity, real estate is an asset class. So if you're looking at your personal portfolio, you could say, okay, I have this money in cash. Cash is, cash is an asset class. Maybe I put a little bit in the stock market. That's another asset class. And maybe I own a home. That's Real estate is an asset class too. So it just defines the different types of places you could put your money. Oh my gosh, this is the best conversation ever. I love it. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of dry, but um, it's a no. little... No, I don't think it's dry at all. I think this is fabulous and fascinating. Well, it is because it is you know, people are just hearing about it every day and they're, they're starting from a deficit of understanding, you know, unless they're inside this elite little bubble. So this is really very informative. Any tips on how to build a team, when to add a position, how to find them, et cetera? Yeah, I think team building is actually a really fun part of starting a company because you get to surround yourself with people who you want to work with, but hopefully that bring a different skill set and perspective. And so when we first did one of our few initial hires, we needed to bring someone on to run the operations at our studio. Dan and I, you know, despite having a lot of experience, had no experience actually operating a physical space and hiring and developing cleaning procedures and inventory management and stuff like that. So um, how we found them is we reached out to one of our advisors who was the former chief operating officer of Equinox. And we said, what do we need for this person? Who should we be looking at? What salary range should we 
you know, put out mm-hmm. there. And he was able to tell us, here's how I would staff this role. Here's who I'd be looking for. So I would say, you're going to know when you need to add a position. A lot of times it's to fill a hole that you don't have. Our next hire will be somebody who's phenomenal at social media and marketing and branding and community. We need that. So you're going to know when to add that, but how to find them is really speaking with your advisors, with people in that industry, um, maybe with your angel investors, if, if you have them. Um, and then we actually found everybody that we've hired on LinkedIn and just direct message them. Um, or ask someone for an introduction. But I think LinkedIn is a really powerful tool for hiring. And if you send someone a direct message and say, hey, I found your profile and I'm really interested in you. And nope, I'm not a recruiter. This is my company. Um, you're, you're pretty likely to get a response. Okay. And I feel like this conversation is really great hitting home the theme of we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are other people that we need to be thinking of as resources and having conversations with them on how to do this. Like you said, you called on your mentor and they helped you figure out that next step. And a lot of people are willing to help. So talk to us about the real estate market. What all goes into finding the perfect space, architects, general contractors, designing it, building it out, et cetera. Real estate in New York is a whole different animal. (laughs) Yes. Oh gosh, we we looked for a while and our business model is actually more to go into underutilized spaces or, you know, vacant retail and transform them into a company that is not only, you know, generating money and profit for ourselves, but also amenitizing the building that we're in and providing value for that landlord. And so we, we looked at a lot of different spaces even though our space on wall street is beautiful storefront retail, we don't need storefront retail because it is more of a private experience, but um, we were able to find this gorgeous light filled space. And so um, for us, we worked with a broker, um, a few different brokers actually. And they're the ones that took us on a lot of tours. And um, you know, I think when you walk into a space, you can kind of decide almost from that initial first look, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, does this feel right? Do I want to be spending my days here? Um, right. And then we leaned on our network of other founders, other spaces. We you know, found a space that we really liked the design and we asked who did it and they referred us to their architect and we ended up working with that architect. I know some people will go through a search. They put out a request for proposal and RFP and say, hey, we want to build this space and they get a lot of different quotes. That's another way to do it. We just you know, went with one that we really liked. Um, then, you know, once you find your architect, um, you have to find a general contractor, so someone to build it. So we actually, once again, looked at businesses that were similar to ours. Ours is pretty heavy on plumbing. So we reached out to some of our friends that started a spin or a cycling studio and that we liked. And we said, who built this for you? Turns out the person that built um, their studio also builds all the Rumble gyms and, you know, Performance House. So they're really experts in um, kind of health and wellness design. And we brought them on to build it. Um, and then, yeah, the build out for us took about four months, five months, um, COVID slowed some stuff down, but it was fun. We went on like weekly site walkthroughs and saw stuff coming together. And then you have to change stuff like in the moment. Um, so it was, and then honestly, for the first four months, the whole thing looked the same. It was just like pipes and electrical wires and wall. And like, what's happening. And then, you know, in two weeks, all of a sudden it just transformed. Yeah. 
that's what happens when you're building a house too. Yeah, okay. Months you can't imagine. And then in the end, it's just like, bam, I know that was so exciting. Four months doesn't seem very long, actually. It was a professional crew. And then for us in New York, we actually, um, our building is a union building. So that was a, a whole new thing for us working with unions and having them come in. Um, Cause only, mm-hmm. you know, I guess one of the, the great things about it is these unions have been working in these New York buildings for decades. And so they know them inside and out. So that was cool mm-hmm. too, to have people that really knew the building come in um, and build it for us. Yeah, that's so exciting. What are your thoughts on the future of work, like working from home versus returning to the office? What do you think that's going to look like? Yeah, so our our business model is really focused on or was focused on, you know, providing these amenities to people that are working at the office all day. And COVID has disrupted that. And Mm -hmm. I think ultimately, we're going to return to a blended model. I don't Mm -hmm. think that people want to be working out of their homes 100%. Um, Some people do. But I think there's going to be uh, a return to people going into offices, but for very specific purposes. They're going in for meetings. Maybe you're meeting a client that you've worked with and you've, you mm-hmm. know, um, you're going in for creativity and collaboration. But mm-hmm. you're really going in to sit in a desk from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. to do mm-hmm. a job that you could do at home. So mm-hmm. I'm hoping that there is a little more and a lot more flexibility and there, I think for creative teams, especially, there will be a need for the office for that collaboration and that human connection. But I also think we will see a lot more roles that can be done remotely and will we'll be 100% remote. So um, I don't think it's the death of the office, but I do think the purpose of the office will change. And, you know, it, it's going to you know, change a lot of uh, how people build their day, essentially, because mm-hmm. you're not maybe expected to be there as long as you're getting your work done. Yeah, there's some things, I think, some positive things about being in an office situation other than, you know, just productivity, but more just about being around like-minded people and the excitement that you have when you're working together, not trying to be on these Zoom calls where half the people can't figure out how to get on them. And, you know, everything is harder to do. You can't just run down the hall. I love going in. It's like, you know, you get up, you get your coffee. I'm more productive there because clearly my office is just to work. Whereas I'm in my apartment, I'm like, oh, I got to like empty the dishwasher and you're getting interrupted. That said, how great would it be for working moms to be able to say, yep, you know, I'm actually going to do this afternoon at home because I have to go pick up my kids. And I exactly. So I really hope it turns into more of a blended model. And I think we're getting there. And for some people, they love going in. And I, I hope that option is still available to them. And I think it will be. Yeah, I think that's a great great thing because people are human beings you know it's like you said life is not a formula sometimes they're going to have sick kids sometimes they want to get away from the house because everyone is expecting them to do all of their things Uh, you know sometimes it's easier to tell people I can't do it I'm going to be in the office all day you'll have to do that for yourself today (laughs) you know so there's pros for both of them in your opinion what does the future of wellness and fitness look like I think wellness and fitness is moving more into connected devices. People like to be able to track their own personal progress against a goal or just see how far they've come. And COVID has really accelerated that trend with the rise of Peloton and Mir and Tonal. And, you know, it seems like there's a new type of connected device being released every time, you know, every day. So I think definitely the rise of connected devices COVID has also ushered in a more personal fitness and wellness experience. 
you aren't necessarily going to these group. No one's going to group classes anymore. And so a lot of times I found myself asking me like, okay, what do I actually need right now? Is that a really strong yoga flow? Do I need to just do a boot camp and kick my own butt? But mm-hmm. we're getting into a more personal, you know, stage of fitness. Um, and I think that will kind of manifest itself in these more semi-private classes that are highly special mm-hmm. or, you know, private or, you know, semi-private personal training. So I think, um, people are, like I said, becoming, you know, really into these connected devices, really looking at their personal metrics and then want that more private and individual attention. I don't think I ever want to go be packed into a yoga class with 30 people next to me. However, I really do miss that live instruction and that hands-on instruction because that's something that we do at home. So, um, yeah, I think it's going to go towards more of these semi-private and and personal, Mm -hmm. um, you know, experiences that that look at individual performance. Yeah, that's great. Let's say you can't afford to have a Peloton at home. You know, you can go to Hydra Studios and do a Peloton class by yourself, but you didn't have to buy the bike. Absolutely. And it takes about, gosh, I think a Hydra Studios membership for three years is equal to how much a Peloton costs. Right. Exactly. And you have other opportunities at the same time. You know, you could get tired of the Peloton. You know, like you said, today I want to do something else. But I paid so much for the Peloton, I can't afford any other classes. So, so it's a win-win at Hydra Studios. That's been the beauty of the model, and it allows you to get out of out of your apartment, try something new. You know, kind yeah. of have that routine to anchor your day around. Um, and you know, me, I guess I could have room for it, but like, where would I put it? Would it mess up the design of my apartment? That's something I'm right. not really into during COVID. So, um, well, right. Yeah. Nice to be in a situation where maybe you'll see someone else too. And again, networking, like what class did you just do? You know, what are you loving? Oh, I just tried this, this class and it was so great. And da, 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 you know, just that connectivity. Totally. And in that sense of discovery. Yes. I think we, I miss a lot. Um, but you know, getting outside of your bubble allows you to discover new things. Right, 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 right. 100%. And I was going to say, well, what about competition? Like I need competition in a group class. It makes me work harder. But actually then I immediately thought on mirror and Peloton, like other people are doing it too. So I guess they're, I don't know, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, no, I think that that sense of we're all doing this together in a group class and I, I don't want to be in a plank anymore, but I see someone else over there that's still in it. So much. And so I do think group fitness will return. I just think over the long term it might look a little different, but look, I, I love these group classes. So, you know, we can't wait to start offering some semi-private ones. Yeah. Smaller groups. Yeah. How did you stay on top of what was happening in finance and now in wellness and fitness? Yeah, so I subscribe to a lot of newsletters that I like to read, and that's something that has been great for me. And so I subscribe to PitchBook, which is a finance startup newsletter uh, really geared towards the venture capital and private equity industries. But I think it's a great read for anybody just to see what new companies are being started, what, how investors are thinking about things. So that's a great one. Uh, I also subscribe to the information. Um, this is a phenomenal, I really love like deep journalism that focuses on one topic narrowly and does it well. 
And if you're into technology, into startups, um, the information is a phenomenal one. And then also, you know, through Instagram is actually where I look at for new fitness trends. Um, I think a lot of times people, a lot of innovation is coming from these creators and these trainers themselves. And so looking, you know, at Instagram and then I have yet to find a phenomenal fitness and wellness newsletter. Um, so I'm all, all open for suggestions in that area. Um, but yeah, those are newsletters for me are, are important. And then, um, if there's anything I really want to save down, I'll save it down to a tool called pocket on my computer. It saves it so you can read it later on your phone, like on the subway when you don't have internet. So it's a great little tool. Oh, I need that. I have so many things that I, you know, flag or mark is unread and then of course never go back. So that's great to know about pocket. Um, maybe you're going to be the one to write the newsletter about fitness. Fitness and wellness and finance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it does a good newsletter. Good news. I mean, that's all like wellness, but it, it's a really, yeah. Yeah. Oh my Love well, that's so funny because Pitchbook and the information, I subscribe to those too. I absolutely love those. I feel like it's digestible. You can kind of get the headlines or if you want to, you can read more. The information does, they have a paywall, but I feel like, and it gives you a lot though. <laughs> Right. It pays for itself. That's kind of like women's wear daily or business of fashion for us. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you feel stressed about all the things you need to read, you know, but, but that's when you set aside time each day and say, this is my time to, to do this. Cause it's very important, but serves as research. Okay. So the future of Hydra studios, are you going to expand to more studios and will it be like more business, like the convene co-working or more consumer like the wall street location? Yeah, we are absolutely looking at a pipeline of new locations to sp- expand to uh, some of them in Manhattan and in you know, the larger New York area to really start building out that network. And then others uh, across the nation. And, you know, we've had some outreach from people who are interested in bringing this into other cities and other places like Denver and Austin, which we're really excited about. Uh, it will be a hybrid between the two models. We, we definitely see an opportunity to expand with these office developers and provide something at the office that gets people back in there. Because like we say, with the evolution of the office, it's going, people are going to come in for a specific purpose and mm-hmm. they can also, you know, get access something there like Hydra Studios that they can't get anywhere else. That's another reason to bring people back. So we really mm-hmm. do want to partner, um, you know, with, landlords and businesses and even you know, corporates to provide a uh, kind of a, a back to work solution for them. Um, that said, the wall street location is more consumer focused. Almost all of our members um, live on wall street. So they're residents around that area. Mm-hmm. And I think that this has some really strong legs as well. It's been fun to test out both models. So, you know, we're looking at other areas that we can expand to that could have, uh, you know, some demand for more of a consumer model and more of a wellness hub. I think these areas do need to be a little denser, which is something for us to keep in mind. Um, so more urban areas under the, the consumer model, but um, that is definitely in the works. Lots of information to take in today. What's next for you? Just all of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is, you know, Hydra Studios is my full-time focus right now. Uh, I'm really enjoying this stage of the company, just experimenting and testing things out and seeing what's working and what isn't, and then learning new things myself. So 
um, that's, yeah, I'm in New York and I'm doing this and that's, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, it's hard to see beyond like the next two years, but that's, that's what I'm doing right now. Well, added into it, the uncertainty about what's going to, what the world's going to be like, you know, this time next year and stuff like that. So you really, you could be taking some turns and, you know, and growing in some areas that you don't even know about right this minute. You know, I think we all feel that way. Who knows what everything's going to look like. Yeah, exactly. I think it's very exciting. I really do. I'm very excited about what you're doing. And I think it's really interesting what came out of COVID for your company too. I think you're going to be um, filling a need for people that you didn't even think about in the beginning. Oh, we hope we thank you. And we, we certainly hope so. Thanks. Okay. So Marie, where can people find you and Hydra Studios? <laughs> you can visit if you're in New York, you can visit Hydra Studios on Wall Street. We're at 120 Wall Street. Uh, you can also just go to our website, Hydra New York spelled out.com. So um, H-Y-D-R-A, New York, N-E-W-Y-O-R-K.com. Um, you can find me, um, Marie. My email is just Marie, M-A-R-I-E, at HydraNewYork.com. If you are starting a business, if you're a female founder, please feel free to reach out. And then you can also find me on Instagram. I'm Vanderclore, V-A-N-D-E-R-K-L-O-O-R. I guess that was um, my family's real last name before we came through Ellis Island and the Vander got chopped off. So um, that's where I am. Oh, that's so terrible. Why did the Vander go away? They thought it was a middle name. So it's funny, all of our, everyone in the Netherlands and Germany, it's Vanderclore. And then everyone in the United States, is just Chlor. (laughs) Fascinating. Okay, well, Marie, thank you. This was truly incredible. I had the best time and learned so much. And I think Mm -hmm. everyone else will too. So we highly encourage, as we mentioned, I visited Hydra Studios on Wall Street and it was phenomenal. So I would highly, highly recommend that you do the same. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Binds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.